So we have um, self as a delusion, first of all. The first of the positions to be explored very briefly is, is the view that there simply is no self or person at all, and that thinking in terms of a self is so destructive of our flourishing that it's a habit of thinking that one should make every effort to break. Some people, when they first encounter Buddhist texts, say that all the possible factors of experience are uh, anatman, not self, that, and they're tempted to take these texts as denying all validity to, to the topic of selves or persons. It's not uncommon to encounter Buddhists in the West, at least, who seem to exhibit a mild discomfort when unable to find suitable circumlocutions for such words as myself, as if to use such expressions violates a linguistic taboo that is part of Buddhist practice to observe. At the very least, a person needs to uh, seems to um, to feel a need to repeat worn-out observations about Buddhist painters not being able to make self-portraits because they have no selves to portray. Uh, and other tired jokes like that. As a serious position, however, it's difficult to imagine eliminativism gaining many adherents. Durlinger is right when he says we cannot very simply abandon a first-person singular conception of ourselves. It may be amusing to try to do so, but the usual result of such experiments is to become convinced that reforming our linguistic habits by expunging all references to self is as unnecessary as it is difficult. Speaking of a self does not require holding the arguably naive view that there exists a single thing to which such words as I or myself in invariably refer. One can still speak of a self as a fiction or as a myth. So I want to turn to these two, these two possibilities. It's common, I think, to regard the most prevalent Indian Buddhist view of the self to be that the self is a kind of socially constructed fiction. One author who's explored this possibility recently is Charles Goodman, Nothing that in the literature of the Vibhashikas, uh, noting that in the, in the literature of the Vibhashikas, there's a tendency to refer to the words for selves and wholes and collections in general as non-literal language or upachara. Goodman speaks of what he calls metaphoricalism. He explains this idea as follows. A metaphoricalist, he says, accounts, a, a metaphoricalist account of the status of a certain class of problematic entities starts from the observation that people frequently talk as if there were such entities. They do, they do so, at least in part, because apparent reference to such entities is useful. It allows them to say things concisely and conveniently that might otherwise be difficult or impossible to convey. The metaphoricalist proceeds to note that the usefulness of talk about the problematic entities does not depend on their existence. Even if they did not exist, they would still have a pragmatic reason to pretend that they existed and to talk about them within that pretense. So Goodman draws upon work by Kendall Watson on fiction, metaphor, and pretense to make a slight adaptation of an example given by Goodman, even though we know that Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn are fictional characters in novels by Mark Twain, we do not hesitate to say it's true that Sawyer and Finn were friends and that they smoked corncob pipes and that it's false that Tom Sawyer was a Texan cowboy. In a similar way, even though the Buddha knew we, that, that uh, he had no personal identity, he did not hesitate to say that he was Ananda's cousin and that his other cousin, Devadatta, was a good monk who had somehow taken a turn for the worse. To the best of my knowledge, there's no traditional Sanskrit term that corresponds to the English word fiction. The Munyar Williams English Sanskrit Dictionary has an entry for fiction. It has an entry for a lot of things. Uh, but the Sanskrit terms that Munir Williams gives all show signs of being modern inventions. Um, the most commonly used Sanskrit expression for the category to which a self belongs 
is pragnapti. The Sanskrit word does not mean fiction. Rather, its most common meanings are such things as teaching, information, instruction, and so forth. Its Pali counterpart, panyati, is, is often understood in the sense of an idea or name or a concept. The Sanskrit compound pragnapti matra and the, and the Pali panyati matta could both be understood in the sense of nothing but a name or merely an idea and thus come close to the idea of a fiction. It could be because of its use in this compound that Dan Lusthaus suggests translating the word as heuristic, a word that is usually applied to the trial and error method of learning or discovery. So if self is a heuristic concept, then it's presumably a provisional or tentative model that's pressed into service until such time as a more precise and accurate idea can be discovered to replace it. Perhaps what those who like to speak in terms of self as being a heuristic model are suggesting is that at present we do not know exactly what there is underlying our thoughts and actions, but until such time as we do know, we might as well speak as if we were persons. I take it that calling something a fiction is somewhat different from calling it a heuristic model. When one calls something a heuristic model, I suppose one is saying that the truth has yet to be found out. Whereas when one calls some idea a fiction, then one is saying that the truth is known and has turned out to be something different from what is being called a fiction. When one says, for example, that Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character who lived in a fictionalized version of the city of London during Victorian times, one is suggesting that one knows the truth about who really lived in Victorian London and knows that Sherlock Holmes was not among them. Or when one says that Sherlock Holmes's consultation with Sigmund Freud about cocaine addiction was an episode in a work of fiction, one is saying that it's known whose Freud's real patients were and among them there was no Sherlock Holmes. So to say of something that it's a fiction is to say that we know what the truth is. It's also saying often that despite knowing what the truth is, we're willing to play along with something untruthful for some reason. Perhaps we're hoping to be entertained or perhaps we're wish, we wish to perceive to preserve social harmony by indulging what we know to be the uh, false beliefs of others. Now, what would be involved in saying that the self is a fiction? What might it mean to say that Buddhists regard the self as a fiction? Presumably, it would imply something like this. Even if I myself have no real idea what the truth is, I have confidence that someone, such as the Buddha, knew the truth of what's really going on when people commonly see their experiences as those of a self having thoughts and actions. And what is really going on is that these thoughts and actions are taking place without the benefit of an actual person or any other kind of agent doing them. And because I have confidence that the Buddha knew the, the truth of this matter, I'm willing to relegate all my intuitions about having a self or being a person to the same place I relegate all discussions of Sherlock Holmes. Of course, a willingness to indulge in what knows to be an untruth need not be attended by a wish to be entertained. We all voluntarily trade in fictions just for the sake of convenience. It saves time and energy to speak in ways that we know to be careless or inaccurate. So when one says that the self is a fiction, one might be saying that one is going to continue using the word self or the pronoun I in about the same way one uses the word sunset. Of course, we all know that the sun does not really rise and set, even though most people who know this would have no idea how to prove it. Um, Despite that, despite what we know to be the case, it's so much more convenient to say the sun is setting than to say the earth is turning in such a way that from where we stand, the sun is becoming, de becoming decreasingly visible. And because its light is coming to us uh, through more air than it comes through at midday, the light is being uh, refracted toward the red end of the spectrum. 
So a Buddhist knows that there's, that there's not really a self, but knows that it's more convenient, not to mention more romantic, to say, I fell in love with a woman I'm, who's now my wife while we were walking along a beach and observing a beautiful sunset, than to say, feelings of attachment arose simultaneously with a perception of red and yellow colors conditioned by refraction of the light of the sun as it passed through the atmosphere of the earth, as the earth turned in such a way that the sun was becoming decreasingly visible from the vantage point of the transitory consciousness that arose, attended by strong feelings of attachment. <laughs> it's no accident that few people read works of Buddhist Sabhidharma to their lovers by candlelight. Um, that body of literature was designed to take everything interesting out of experience. <laughs> as was suggested earlier, it seems to be commonly believed that Buddhists in India regarded the self as a fiction of some kind. I do not think that common belief is wrong, but I do at times wonder whether it's right, or at least whether saying that the, that the Buddha taught of the, self, uh, taught of the self as a fiction does justice to the complexity of his teaching on the matter. One of the most thought-provoking texts on this question is the Potapada Sutta, the ninth sutta of the Diganikaya. In sections 39 to 53 of that sutta and following, the Buddha is portrayed as saying that there are three kinds of appropriations of self, there is, he says, a coarse or material uh, olatika uh, self made up of the four material elements and nourished by physical food, and a mental manomaya self consisting of the functioning sense faculties, and a formless arupan self consisting of perception, sanyamaya. Uh, for, for each of these three kinds of self, the Buddha says he teaches a doctrine designed for abandoning it, um, pahanaya. Now, if the self is constructed as a fiction, what exactly might the Buddha be mean in saying that he's offering a way to abandon it? If something is truly a fiction, then one cannot have it in the first place, so there's no question of abandoning it. Of course, it could be that abandoning a fiction just means realizing that it's a fiction and not a reality. So, for example, when a child comes to realize that the story of a lagomorph who brings decorated eggs to good children at Easter time is a fiction and not a historically accurate narrative, we might say that the child abandons the Easter Bunny. This is an odd way of stating the situation, but I suppose it's an allowable way of saying it. So it's possible that when the Buddha says he offers a way of abandoning the three kinds of self, he's conserving the energy that would be required to say that he offers a way of realizing that the three kinds of self are fictions and not realities. While it's possible that he meant something of that sort, there's no strong reason to interpret his words in that way. And that construal does more than a little, uh, feels um, more like an over-interpretation than the most natural interpretation. In the passages of the Potapada Sutra, Sutta that follow, the one, uh, the one just cited, we find the Buddha saying that whenever the coarse material self is present, it would be wrong to call it a mental self. And whenever the mental self is present, it would be wrong to call it a formless self. This point is then illustrated by an analogy with the various stages that milk undergoes. From the cow, one gets milk, and that turns into coagulated milk, which in turn becomes butter, which can be clarified into ghee. When milk is present, one does not call it ghee, and when ghee is present, one does not call it coagulated milk. This analogy sounds like a warning to be sure to use whatever nomenclature is suitable for each phase of a continual process. It's not entirely obvious that this is the best analogy for the different kinds of self the Buddha talked about earlier, since it's not obvious that the mental self is something that evolves out of an earlier coarse material self in the way that, say, ghee eventually evolves out of milk. 
Before the analogy was given, it sounded as if the point being made was only uh, that, oh, that um, before the analogy was given, it sounded as if the point being made was that there are several things that exist simultaneously, but that only one of them is likely to be the focus of our attention at any given moment. But the imperfection of the analogy aside, it seems as though the point is that one should be careful to give whatever name is suitable to what is being experienced. One is not fully prepared for the Buddha's summary of this discussion. After speaking of how it is appropriate to call a coarse material self by the proper name, he says of all these names, and I'm going to, to give you a translation, Maurice Walsh's translation. He says, but chitta, these are merely names, expressions, terms of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. That same passage is translated by uh, T.W. Reese Davids as follows, for these chitta are merely names, expressions, terms of speech, designations in common use in the world, and of these the Tathagata one who has, who has won the truth makes use indeed, but is not led astray by them. Reese Davids also provides us with a footnote. He says, the point, of course, is that just as there is no substratum in the products of the cow, so in man there is no ego, no constant unity, no soul in the animistic sense of the word as used by savages. There are a number of qualities that when united make up a personality, always changing, when the change has reached a certain point, it's convenient to change the designation, the name by which the personality is known, just as in the case of the products of the cow. But the abstract term is only a convenient form of expression. There never was any personality as a separate entity all the time. Now, both of these translations, Walsh's and Rhys Davids's, um, and Rhys Davids's footnote certainly support the notion that the Buddha is speaking of something like convenient fictions here. One problem with their translations, however, is that there is no basis in the original Pali text for the word merely that appears in both translations. The text does not say these are merely names. It says these are names by which the Tathagata communicates. Now, the Tathagata who uses these names is described as being a paramasan, which is the negation of the present participle of the verb paramasati, uh, paramasati. This participle translated as without misapprehending by Walsh and is not led astray by Rhys Davids usually means something like not being attached or not being influenced. So on the most innocent reading, that is the reading that is arguably the, the least interpreted in the light of later doctrinal <coughs> commitments, the Buddha would be saying something more like this. For these are popular expressions, popular ways of speaking, popular terms by which the Tathagata, without being attached, does business. Or something, Vilharati, <laughs> does business. There's no need to see this as implying that the concepts of self are fictitious. All the text actually warrants is that a wise person takes care not to be, become attached to the self. While it may be helpful under certain circumstances to see a, a potential object of attachment as a fiction, it's certainly not necessary. One can, for example, avoid being unduly influenced by neoconservative Republicans without regarding them as fictitious beings in the same ontological category as King Kong or Ebenezer Scrooge. While there's no counterpart for the word merely in the Potapada Sutta, there certainly is a counterpart of that word in the Melinda Pano. Here we find the often, uh, the often quoted reply of Nagasena when Melinda asks what his name is. 
But though my parents gave me the name of Nagasena or Surasena or Virasena or Sihasena, yet it is but a den it is it is but a denotation, appellation, designation, current usage for Nagasena is only only a name since no person is got at here. This text sets the tone for most Indian Buddhist doctrine that follows. It's interesting that, that its terminology is almost exactly the same as that of the Potapada Sutta. The only difference is that Melinda Pano adds the word mattam, merely, only, nothing but. So a name becomes a mere name. Moreover, to reinforce that point, we're told in Melinda Pano, unlike in Potapada, that no person is apprehended here. So while it would be plain wrong to say that plenty of Indian Buddhists seem to have regarded the self as, or, or the person as a kind of fiction, a name without a referent, I'd like to argue that it's not necessary for Buddhists to advocate the view that the self is a fiction. Let's leave the question open now, open for now and return later to exploring whether there may be a good reason not to follow the hermeneutics of fiction. Let me turn now to the, to the view or the attitude that the self is such a useful construct for some particular purpose that the question of whether the self really exists just seems pointless to ask, what I'm calling the mythological view. One could arrive at this attitude in a variety of ways, but there's one in particular I'd like to look at. A way of being relatively indifferent to the whole issue of truth is to cultivate an attitude like that exhibited by, among others, some Quakers. Quakers are given to using such, such phrases as the inward light, um, that of God and everyone, the seed, the inner Christ, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of sort of Quaker language like that that's used. But one looks in vain for carefully formulated theological discussions of what exactly these terms mean or what the universe would have to be like for them to be the names of distinct entities. They are phrases that Quakers use to speak of a family of experiences and of ways of organizing one's life uh, in accordance with experiences that one sees as significant. If a Quaker finds a way of speaking useful, she might say, that speaks to my condition, without expecting that the way of speaking would speak to the condition of any other person. Expressions such as the inward light are arguably most useful when they are the least defined and most vague. It would, be, it would not be impossible for a Quaker to function without the concept of the inward light, but the concept is mighty useful and therefore might as well be retained, no matter how much puzzlement it may occasion philosophers, scientists, theologians, and others who make it their business to impose precision on as much discourse as possible. The concept of person or self could be seen as rather like that of the Quaker notion of the inward light. It could be seen as a concept that we agree to use without anxiety as to whether it refers to anything particular. Uh, that, that uh, anything that, that, that would be certified by a qualified ontologist is legitimately belonging on the inventory list of pieces of the universe's furniture. As mentioned above, neither Durling nor Siderits mention any view quite like this, probably because nothing quite like it existed in classical Indian Buddhism. There were no Buddhist Quakers as far as I know. Uh, I mention it merely because someone might wish to avail himself of it as a softer version of the view to which I now turn namely seeing the concept of self as person as a prerequisite to any kind of human enterprise. Stephen Collins, over here to my left, <laughs> makes the observation that there's um, a Buddhist literature, Abhidhamma, in which the task is to replace all personal language with reference to impersonal events. In the language of Durlinger and Siderits, both of whom are following Derek Parfit and Collins himself, Abhidhamma 
carries out a reductionist project in which all references to persons are seen as nothing but a shorthand way of, taking, of talking about a complex of conditioned um, events. This literature, he suggests, serves the purpose of aiding in the cultivation of certain kinds of unselfish behavior. But no one, not even a monastic, is expected to think and speak in this deliberately impoverished and impersonal language all the time. Rather, the reductionist language is something that some meditators do some of the time in order to cultivate a particular set of virtues. Outside the specialized Abhidhamma literature, however, authoritative Buddhist texts speak without embarrassment of persons, personalities, selves, and characters. Talking in such terms seems useful, if not necessary, for talking of karma, rebirth, ethics, responsibility, and a variety of social roles that monks no less than laypersons occupy. As Collins puts it, Buddhist monks as social agents are unitary and enduring persons. It's not simply a convenient or conventional fiction to use ordinary language to refer to such persons. There is, in principle, an analysis of such agency which can dispense with reference to persons, but such a reductionist discourse cannot serve the social, legal, or behavioral purposes of the non-reductionist discourse which it can in principle replace. To say that a reductionist discourse cannot serve the social, legal, and behavioral uh, purposes su suggests that some notion of a self as a reality is a prerequisite to certain kinds of human activity. I'm not just trying to put words into, into Steve's mouth, but it could be taken as that, right? <laughs> but I would like to argue what I would like to argue is that some notion of self as a reality could be seen as also indispensable to the principal goal of Buddhist practice. One might begin with something along the line of John Locke's definition of a person. Uh, person, as I take it, uh, uh, this is from, from Locke. Um, person, as I take it, is a name for the self. What, whenever, wherever a person, wherever a man finds what he calls himself there, I think another may say is the same person. It's a forensic term, appropriating actions and their merit, and so belongs only to intelligent agents capable of a law and unhappiness and misery. There's a lot more that Locke has to say than that, but I wanted to sort of focus for now on this notion of it as a forensic term. Now, if one were to believe that this forensic concept of person were indispensable for both human law and some sort of cosmological law, as Locke did, one could not easily believe that without some such view of a person there can be no spiritual practice aimed at reducing the amount of unhappiness that a person endures. Let's say, just for the sake of discussion, that a Buddhist were convinced that the ameliorative um, program of Buddhist practice really has no foundation other than that of some kind of self or person similar to the sort that Locke described. How could a Lockean Buddhist square such a view with what is usually presented as Buddhist doctrine? The standard way of reconciling the personal way of thinking with the impersonal is to appeal to the two levels of truth. One could, in other words, say that the, person, the personal way of thinking is for uh, ordinary life, but that eventually, when the practitioner is intellectually and emotionally prepared to jettison the idea of a self altogether, that that is superseded by the more accurate portrayal of reality as impersonal events. Steve Collins articulates the strategy for solving the problem um, of reconciling personal with impersonal views with, with uh, admirable clarity. Um, a quote from him, he says, within Buddhist thought, 
there's an apparently simple answer to this problem. Two levels or kinds of language and truth are distinguished, the conventional and the ultimate. It is truly ultimate, it is true ultimately that there is no self, but conventionally it's possible to designate the temporary psychophysical configurations of impersonal events we think of as persons by proper names, pronouns including I, definite descriptions, and other means of reference. In a characteristically Indian solution to a dilemma, two apparently incompatible alternatives are both kept but ordered into a hierarchy. While looking at the so-called two truths as a hierarchy within a higher truth, wherein a higher truth sublates a lower truth, works well enough, there may be an alternative way of approaching the problem that does not require that the allegedly lesser truth be replaced or superseded by the higher. Rather than seeing the Sanskrit term satya or the Pali satya as <coughs> truth, suppose we see it as meaning something more like just goodness. Um, the advantage of doing this is that when one sees one good is higher than another, one need not eliminate the lower. Saying, for example, that personal integrity is a greater good than, say, physical health does not require a commitment to seeing physical health as entirely unworthy of pursuit. Similarly, one could say that attaining freedom from the root causes of unhappiness, among which is, un is, is selfishness, is a higher good than maintaining a deserved good reputation as a citizen of, of one's country by obeying the state's laws. But this would in no way imply that it's not a, that it's not a very good thing to be and to, to, to be perceived as a good citizen of a good state. Truths, it seems to me, are much more jealous than goods. Competing goods can exist easily, whereas competing truths seem to feel a need to fight to the death. I see goods as being more like dogs and, and, and truths as being more like cats in this respect. So if we look at the impersonal perspective of Abhidhamma as a good strategy for achieving the good of being less self-centered and the pers personal perspective as a good strategy for achieving the good of being a responsible member of the community of sentient beings, then both perspectives have quite a legitimate place and one need only develop a good sense of occasion when it's better to think uh, and, and speak abhidhamically, and when is it better to think and speak as a person among other persons? Now, so far, what I've suggested is that we might look at the Buddhist doctrine of non-self, anatman, more as a shorthand way of stating an ethical desideratum than as a metaphysical claim. Indeed, I've been told by several Japanese Buddhists that this is just how most Japanese Buddhists understand the doctrine of anatman, not self, it's an invitation to be more ethical by learning not to be selfish, not as a metaphysical claim about what kinds of things are real. But suppose our metaphysical habits die hard and we find ourselves hankering to have a metaphysical understanding of the relationship between the personal and the impersonal. Is there a way of seeing both the personal discourse and the impersonal discourses simultaneously true in the same way? Mark Sideritz suggests a way that this might be done. In Personal Identity and Buddhist Philosophy, Sideritz has a chapter discussing the notion of supervenience, a concept from analytic philosophy that has been used primarily in the context of philosophy of mind and whole part relationships, myriology, that kind of thing. There was a time about 40 years ago when some philosophers favored a reductionist way of speaking uh, about all the events we collectively refer to as mind by saying that speaking of mind is really nothing but a familiar way of speaking about essentially physical events 
such as uh, neurophysiological and chemical states in the central nervous system. Talking about mind and consciousness was seen as little more than a carryover from a pre-scientific age when people still believed in souls and spirits and were innocent of biochemistry and synapses. For a variety of good reasons, the reductionist trend gave way to another way of looking at the relationship between mental events and physical events. This way was, a, this, this way was, um, was able to see both mind and body as realities, neither being fully explained by the other, one being strongly influenced by the other. In this way of looking at things, the events that we call mind are said to be supervenient on the events that we call body. A supervenience relation between two classes of property, A and B, exists if and only if any change in one class is explained by a change in the other class. So class A is supervenient on class B if, if any change in A is explained by a change in B. Sideritz, invoking this kind of relation, suggests a situation in which it might be used. So, uh, quoting Sideritz, he says, is it not possible that a more respectable ontological status might be found for persons than that of a conceptual fiction? Specifically, might it not be the case that when sufficiently many psychophysical elements interact in a sufficiently complex way, there arises, there arise genuinely novel properties, properties the occurrence of which could not have been predicted from our knowledge of the constituent psychophysical elements alone. This view that persons non-reductively supervene on the psycho psychophysical elements seems attractive precisely because it holds out the hope that we can make do without occult entities while still honoring our common sense commitment to the existence of persons. End of a quote from Sideritz. There are predicates that we can apply to persons that we cannot apply as, meaningful, as meaningfully to psychophysical elements, to aggregates or skandhas. Persons have personalities and can know themselves. They can reflect on, on where they stand in the acquisition of virtue. They can have mentors, undergo psychoanalysis, take up Buddhist contemplative practices, become better citizens, become arhats or bodhisattvas. They can be kalyanamitras. They can be ordained as monks or nuns. They can be abbots of monasteries. They can die, and they can even be reborn, unless, of course, they're arhats. There's no reason to rule out being reborn as more than one person at a time. You could have a kind of fusion of, of, of fission, rather, of... of, of Personalities. Somebody, somebody could be two people um, it, in, in the next rebirth, for example. This, these are things that, that uh, would be possible with the supervenience theory. Since doing many of these things that only persons can do are important to Buddhism as a path, one could argue that being a person is equally important. There's, a, there's no need for reductionism, and one way of being a non-reductionist is, is appeal to the notion of supervenience. One of the advantages that supervenience theory has is that it enables one to speak of causal relationships between two sets of complex events without having to specify precisely what elements of one set are influences of precisely what elements in the other. You can speak in this kind of general way. We can even acknowledge that there can be more than one cause for the same kind of event. There can be what John Stuart Mill called a plurality of causes for a given effect and a plurality of effects stemming from a single cause. While acknowledging that speech is non-reductively supervenient on intentions and on and, and other sanskaras and on the movement of certain muscles in the head, we can also acknowledge that different kinds of intentions 
could give rise to exactly the same speech acts, and that scoundrels can utter precisely the same words as Buddhas and saints, even though scoundrels and saints do not have exactly the same mentalities. These acknowledgments are more difficult for a reductionist. Dharmakirti, for example, defines the particular nature, the swabhava of a being as the totality of its causes, uh, sakala karana samagri. This would mean that two things that had different complexes of causes could not have the same nature. And from this, it should follow that the speech of a swindler could not have the same nature as the speech of a Buddha. Part of the causal complex of a Buddha's speech is a desire to liberate sentient beings from their troubles, while part of the causal complex of a swindler's speech is to take advantage of a sentient being's naive trust. And since these intentions are very different, the resultant speech acts should be different according to, um, to, to the way that Dharmakirti defines nature. So how could their speech have the same nature? Why should it be impossible, as Dharmakirti acknowledges it is, to know from what a person says or how she says it, whether she's a charlatan or a Buddha? Puzzles of this kind do not arise for those who analyze events in terms of non-reductive supervenience, because such analysis begins with an acknowledgement that the causal relations among things complex enough to be interesting can be talked about in general, but not in detail. In other words, we can know that the shape of a kernel of popped corn is caused by heat, but the popping of corn is such an enormously complex event that it's impossible to practice in practice to say just why a particular kernel of popped corn has the shape that it has.